Good morning, church. Please join me in the reading of God's word. Our passage this morning is Luke 9, 28 through 43a. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became very bright, a brilliant white. Then two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with him. They appeared in glorious splendor and spoke about his departure that he was about to carry out at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those with him were quite sleepy, but as they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Then as the men were starting to leave, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. As he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So they kept silent and told no one at that time anything of what they had seen. Now on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions and causes him to foam at the mouth. It hardly ever leaves him alone, torturing him severely. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and endure you? Bring your son here. As the boy was approaching, the demon threw him to the ground and shook him with convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Then they were all astonished at the mighty power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Chris. Well, if you've been following along or you're new here, we've been journeying through the Gospel of Luke. And obviously that is where we are this morning. But if you've been following along, you've noted that we've skipped some sections. And I just wanted to quickly address that as we go to this text to let you know why we're doing that. One is we're going to be in Luke's Gospel probably till 2020 anyways um, but it could be even longer if we went verse by verse we are the sermons are verse by verse but we are skipping a couple sections we want to take the whole counsel of God that's important and so obviously there's more than just the gospel of Luke so what we've done is selected passages which I feel give a good overview of this book and so you understand where where Luke is going with the narrative so forgive me for my method of madness but that's why we're doing what what we're doing. So let's go to the Lord of Prayer and then we'll dive into this, this scene here in Luke's Gospel. Father, we just pause for a minute. We live in a world that's full of chaos. 
Lord, our hearts break every time we turn on the news and we see what is happening. For some, we don't need to turn on the news. We just need to put down the cell phone as we engage a wayward son or daughter or hear of another terminal illness. Lord, uh, our world's plagued with wars, rumors of wars, plagues, etc. And it's easy to come into this moment in your presence and to be distracted. Father, clear away the cobwebs. Help us to have blinders on that are focused on your word. We thank you for this living word that uh, changes hearts. And Father, we ask that this morning our hearts would be molded to what you would have for us in the text. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Peter writes two letters that are included in the latter part of the New Testament canon, 1st and 2nd Peter. In 2nd Peter, it's kind of his last words, and he, he's writing, and part of the first chapter or so is to validate his claim that what we are declaring to you is true. And Peter says, I was an eyewitness. And you might expect him to refer to the raising of Lazarus or the empty tomb. Perhaps it's a demon procession exorcism that Jesus had performed. But no, of all the things that Jesus or Peter refers to in the life of Jesus that he witnessed, it's this scene, the transfiguration. It is vital to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's narratives. And I would argue that it's, it's the apex or the climax of the narrative and everything is downhill to Jerusalem. In Luke's gospel in particular, we've been journeying through Galilee and we've been heading to this moment where Jesus has just declared in chapter 9, I'm going to suffer. And the disciples short circuit on that. And Jesus even says, and you too will suffer. If you want to follow me, you take up your cross. Deny yourself and follow me. The text we looked at last week. And then we come to the scene. And this is moving us, after chapter 9, we move into going into Jerusalem and head towards, really we head towards Calvary is where we're headed in the narrative. But you come to this powerful scene, the transfiguration, and it's vital. It's vital to the text. Uh, one scholar states, the transfiguration will provide a momentary but nonetheless significant anticipation of Jesus' heavenly glory along with the fullness of God's kingdom. Notice what it says in verse 27 of chapter 9, 9:27. I tell you, Jesus states, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. Next scene, transfiguration. It's a picture of the kingdom of God as found in all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that verse. That you will not, some will not taste death until they see the kingdom. Next event, immediately following it, is the, is the transfiguration. And the scholar goes on to state, together with God's own legitimation of the hard words that Jesus has spoken concerning the Son of Man and the character of discipleship. So we, we look at the transfiguration and we ask, why is this so significant? Number one, it's, it's an endorsement of Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is him and all his glory. And this is what you will anticipate in the future. Second reason why the transfiguration is so important to the narrative as we, before we dive into this, it's also an endorsement to the disciples. Your faith in this one, hmm, yep, this is the one that you've looked to. This is indeed your Messiah. In fact, as you note from the text, the father is going to tell Peter in particular, uh, be quiet and listen to what he has to say to you. 
Uh, this has been a problem with the disciples. Uh, this, this confusion that has surrounded Jesus and, and understanding the full implications that Jesus came to earth not to reign on a throne, but to die on a cross. And that does not compute with the disciples. It's not what they expected of a Messiah. They're looking for someone to overthrow Rome. That's what they anticipate. And so when they see this scene, it's, ooh, this is what we've looked to. And further instruction is needed. And that leads us to the third reason why the transfiguration is so important. It's a reminder to the disciples, you don't understand yet what I'm trying to teach you. The scene that follows this man with a demonic son is seen in all three Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels right after the transfiguration. It's a reiteration that these disciples do not fully understand, grasp why Jesus has come and what all that entails. And we'll try to flesh that out today as we move through. But the transfiguration does provide hope, but it calls for trust and perseverance in the faith. And we're going to see that as we move along. Well, let's dive into the text. Let's look at verse 28. It says about eight days around that time, it says after these sayings, note, note that there's the graveling hook that goes back to the previous chapter 9 where Jesus talks about his suffering, where he talks about what it means to follow him. And Jesus took with him the three amigos, Peter, John, and James. They seem to be the ringleaders. And the text tells us they go up to the mountain to pray. Only Dr. Luke mentions they go to pray. In fact, he mentions it in the next verse as well in the text. Twice he states they go to pray. Remember Luke? He highlights the role of prayer in the life of Jesus. I challenge you to look at the book of Acts. Every chapter, implicitly or explicitly, mentions prayer. It's vital to the life of the church. It was vital to Christ's ministry. And so we're told they go up the mount to pray. Now, if you, as you read this text and you see their face shining and, and so forth, if it's drawing your mind to the time when Moses appeared before the Lord on Mount Sinai and later when he saw the glory of the Lord, then you are correct. The overtones are huge, and that needs to be seen. Unfortunately, we don't have the time to develop it as we should on that aspect. But there is much that's happening there that's very similar to Moses' encounter with God's glory. <clears throat> and Matthew, in particular, in his narrative, when he recounts this story, draws far more parallels than even Dr. Luke does. But it's there. <clears throat> Well, notice in, in verse 3 then of chapter 9, uh, I'm sorry, uh, verse 30, notice what the text tells us. It says, then we have two men who appear. You've got this scene. Not only do you have visitors, but th their appearance shows like the, the faces transform. Verse 29, their clothes are bright. M Mark tells us that it's so white that there's nothing on the earth that can make it that white. Clorox, biz bleach, none of them can cut it. Uh, what, what is showing us, this is, there's no way to describe what's happened here. This is beyond human description and understanding. But you have two men, Moses and Elijah. <laughs> Many scholars will tell you, well, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets and they are testifying to Jesus. I have a real problem with that. Uh, Elijah does not represent the prophets throughout the Old Testament. He's not the key ringleader. 
as some would argue, and he certainly in it is not in rabbinic literature. No, I think the reason Moses and Elijah there are they represent the end. This is the kingdom in all its glory. There's a text in Malachi, if you want to turn there, it's the last book of the Old Testament. It's by the Italian prophet Malachi. Uh, right? Malachi 4. There's an interesting closing to this book. And Malachi says, remember the teaching of my servant Moses. The statutes and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Both Moses and Elijah had unique deaths or lack thereof. Both individuals were associated with an idea of restoration. Moses restores the people in a new exodus or the exile then the bringing them out. Elijah is also known as a figure of bringing restoration. They're both seen as eschatological figures. That is their presence is an indication the end has arrived. In Revelation, you meet two witnesses, remember that, that come? They're described in Mosaic and Elijah typology. Why? They're an indication, this is it. If I could take you to Syria, on the outskirts of Syria, they're in the Dura Europa synagogue that was built in the late 100s, early 200s AD. It's the earliest representation of human form in Jewish art in this synagogue. It retells the, the story of the Old Testament. It moves through chronologically, except where the Torah sits in the front of the room. In that niche, on one side is Moses, and on the other side, Elijah. Not a coincidence. They are seen as the figures who bring in the end. They usher this in, and, and their representation, their presence here is huge. And notice what they're doing, verse 30. It says, they began talking with Jesus. They appeared in glorious splendor as well, and spoke about, literally the Greek term is exodus. And scholars will say, ah, there it is. It's the new exile, or the new deliverance. The problem is the term exodus is not used for the event of the exodus in Greek literature. That's ekago. This is a different term. This term is always used of death. Moses and Elijah are figures of restoration, the end. And what are they talking to Jesus about? His death, his burial, I would argue, in his resurrection. That's where restoration comes they know, they see this in and they bring this in and, and, and they're saying, this is what we're discussing. Peter, in his response, is clear. It says they, they wake up, they're quite sleepy. And as they become fully awake, they saw his glory. And notice what Peter wants to do. He wants to build booths. He wants to set up shop. The booths are a symbol of the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a custom that was practiced among the Jews. These booths were built to indicate the time the, the 
the Israelites were in the wilderness and how God provided for them and how they delivered them. But it's stronger than that. What Peter is saying is he sees Moses and Elijah standing with Jesus in all their glory. He says, that's it. Set up the booze. This is shop. This is the kingdom. Here we go. Let's, let's roll. Or as Tom Flynn says, let's go. Right? This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've longed for. Moses and Elijah. God responds, the father, to Peter. Once again, Peter has foot and mouth disease. And even, I love the line in verse 33, not knowing what he was saying. Now is not the time, Peter. You've missed it. Now remember, they were sleepy, so they didn't hear the conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. What he sees is, this is it, boom. You missed the whole conversation, uh, Peter, that they're going to go, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer. No, no, this isn't the time to set up the kingdom, Peter. You've missed it. Don't you hate it when you have a conversation with someone and someone comes by and interjects and they weren't even part of the conversation. They have no idea what you're talking about and they say something that you just want to go, that was dumb. Uh, we didn't invite you into the conversation. Oh, that's kind of how it is here. Sadly, Peter, he, he's missed it. No, 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 no. This is a picture of the kingdom. But what we're discussing here, Peter, is what is about to transpire in Jerusalem where full restoration comes. When God who took on flesh dies on a cross for our sins, pays the price, and then is victorious over death. That's the restoration. And that's what starts this process of ushering in the kingdom eventually down the road. But right now, this is what we're discussing. And he misses it and the voice says, so out of the cloud, they're brought into this cloud. Clouds are always indication of God's presence in the Old Testament. In verse 35, it says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The problem with Peter is not only has he missed the mark and wasn't part of the conversation, he's also running ahead of the Lord, which is far dangerous, far more dangerous. It's easy to run ahead of the Lord and presume we know what the Lord is doing, isn't it? Sinclair Ferguson writes, Appearances can be deceptive. The fact that we cannot see what God is doing does not mean that he is doing nothing. The Lord has his own timetable. It is we who must learn to adjust to it, not vice versa. When God's time comes, nothing will stand in his way. We can therefore wait for him with this happy confidence as for God, his way is perfect. Amen. Perhaps you have felt like a Peter. It's, Lord, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> I've been praying for five months. I've been praying for five years, maybe 50 years. My spouse doesn't know the Lord. I have a child who's wayward. Uh, we're struggling financially, struggling with health issues. Where are you? Why aren't you acting? And I love the father's response. Listen. Stop talking, Peter. Right? And God declares this, the, the parallel here in this, my son, my chosen one, it reminds you of the baptism of Jesus, doesn't it? When God the father speaks. This is my beloved son. In, in the baptism, the father uses the second person. He, he refers to Jesus. It's a, it's a dialogue between the two of them. Here it's third person. In other words, disciples, <laughs> sit up and pay attention. You've got a lot to learn. 
The reference to my son and the chosen one echoes two Old Testament texts, if you're taking notes. Uh, Psalm 2, which we saw at the baptism of Jesus, where the Lord states, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we're, we're told that Jesus is the only begotten son, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish. It's not that Jesus is an offspring of God. That term can mean also ranking or unique one, which is probably a better way to render it. Jesus is the unique one. Isaiah 42, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. Listen else what Isaiah states in, in verses 6, 7, and 8. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and have kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prisoners those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will give to no other. <laughs> this is my son, my chosen one. It screams, Psalm 2, it screams Isaiah 42, this is the one we've longed for. This is the one that we have come to anticipate. He truly is the Messiah. God in the flesh. And unlike, again, the other scene, that is the baptism, the disciples need to be reminded. Daryl Bach in his commentary says, it is they who need the heavenly testimony. It is they who need, and this is important, they need to listen. And you think about it, listening in scripture refers, really there's two ideas. One is listening entails humility, doesn't it? The statement is followed by this command to listen because up until this point, Peter's demonstrated that there's preconceived ideas. They're still not grasping all that this is entailing. What do you mean you have to suffer? Luke doesn't give the discussion after the Mount of Transfiguration, but Matthew and Mark do. And they have a whole discussion. Wait a minute, Elijah came, I thought this was the kingdom. Why are you having to suffer? None of this makes sense. It's not computing. Ray Ortland writes, humility listens. Humility cultivates courtesy and resistance in speech and manner. Where humility is, God is. And that's the problem. Peter's run ahead of the Lord and he's not listening and the father has to say listen to him. But it also reminds me of the parables. Remember what Jesus said? He who has an ear you better hear. You better listen. When your mama says are you listening to me? <laughs> Mama's not asking if you have cognitive recognition of what she has just told you. What she's telling you is, you need to pick up your clothes. <laughs> I expect action. And throughout scripture, the call to hear is an expectation that there will be action. What did we see going into the transfiguration of Luke's gospel? If you want to be my follower, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. They still don't get it. We come to the transfiguration and all the glory and endorsement of who Jesus is and yet they're still having a hard time 
processing and the other nine are going to demonstrate they can't process and that's seen in the next event in the text. Let's look at this, verse 37. And so on the next day when they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. There was a man in the crowd who cried out, Teacher, I beg you, he's going to beg twice. We see this in verse 40 as well, to look at my son. The, the term here, look, is, is not, you know, and your kid says, hey, look at this, and you're working on the computer, and they want to show you some artwork. Oh, that looks nice, Johnny. Well done. And you go back to type. No, no, no. This is a, a regard to process it, to look at it and fully process. And this man says, he's my only child. Sound familiar? The widow of Nain said that. The, the man, Jairus, with the daughter said, that's my only child. This is the third time we have an, a miracle where it surrounds an only child. All of their hopes, all of their expectations are on that child. There's also no retirement plan, 401s, ARP, there's none of that available. So uh, their future is, is at stake with their child. This is who's going to care for me down the road as well. But far deeper is the love. And you sense that in the desperation of the father, don't you? Mark tells us that this child has been demon-possessed since they were a little wee one, which is very interesting. Verse 39, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. I know you're probably thinking that at times with your own child, but no, this is different. <laughs> it throws him into convulsions and causes him to foam at the mouth. That term is loaded. It's, the term convulsions is used of dogs who, who tear up a carcass. This kid is ravaged with demon possession. It's destroying him. How ironic that this man, the father, has come to the one who can restore Versus Satan who is seeking to destroy. And you'll notice in verse 40, he said, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Wow. You've been with Jesus how long? You've been sent out as ambassadors for the Lord earlier in the gospel? You've seen miracles time and time again and you understand what it means to follow and yet you nine yehus cannot do this task. A simple, it's one demon according to the text. This isn't a legion like we had at Gerizim. You can't accomplish this? Listen, the father says to the disciples least to Peter, James, and John. They failed to remember to follow Christ is to allow him to work, I would argue. And the problem is they have not, they've tried to do this on their own accord. If you listened, you would have known you deny yourself, you call on Jesus' name to perform this act. Self-reliance is added to any, or any, any self-reliance will add to the equation of Christian service. And I will argue it will end in failure. So what I appreciate about our elders and our deacons here at CBF are desires that do not get in the way of the Lord. <laughs> Allow him to work. A good friend of mine, a colleague, he says, don't stand in Jesus' way. I said, don't worry, we're having trouble keeping up with him. <laughs> at CBF, he's moving so fast. And it's exciting. It's glorious. But may we not. And that's the problem with the disciples. They have felt, I would argue, to deny themselves. They've looked to try to, to, to rectify this miracle on their own. And it's, it's flopping. It's a disaster. 
A person who truly understands the glory of God, which was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, will realize they have nothing to offer to the Lord. This isn't about us. It's not about me. It's about the Lord. I, even building booths, Peter, that's useless. If God wanted to set up a tent, he'd set up a tent. He doesn't need you to do it. What a stupid remark. <laughs> Poor Peter. I, we give him a lot of heartache, but, you know, put yourself in his shoes, right? Uh-huh. What do I do here? I don't know what to do. Just be quiet. Listen. Bask in God's presence. Understand. And Jesus gives some very harsh words at this moment. He says, you unbelieving and perverse generation. It echoes Deuteronomy 32. Where in that text it states, Give ear, O heavens, I will speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop like rain, my speech condense like the dew. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will ascribe greatness to him. The rock, his work is perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God without deceit, just and upright is he. Yet this degenerate children have dealt falsely with him, a perverse and crooked generation. They've not taken God at his word back in Deuteronomy. And God pulls out a, spaddle, a paddle and he spanks them hard. Now we come to this scene once again. They have failed to take God at his word. They've, they, they've sought to join forces, so to speak, with God and say, we'll, we'll accomplish this. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You got to deny yourself. You got to follow me. And, and, and if you understood what you saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, why would you think you have anything to offer anyways? Who are you? In the midst of a, an almighty God. I wonder what the Lord would say about our generation. Or more specifically, the church in America. Big C. This way. The state of the evangelical church, I would argue, is very concerning. We are anemic. Similar to the generation that Jesus faced, we as the church, I think are, we are in grave danger of facing today's ideology of retreating into self-defining spiritual ghettos or embracing our culture dictated by political correctness, CRT, LGBTQI. We need a church that consists of believers who are bold, unashamed, undaunted in its witness to the gospel of God and its saving, life-transforming power. Do we serve the same Jesus as on the Mount of Transfiguration? Yes, we do. As Nehemiah prayed, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. He prayed that before he went and asked if he could go back to Jerusalem to build the walls that were destroyed. Things looked very bleak. We need to be a believers that recognize that Jesus is the one that was on the Mount of Transfiguration is the same Jesus we embrace, we worship, and serve. Believers who not only recognize this Jesus, but they live accordingly. Amen. We come to this scene and, and Jesus says, you, you got to be, how much longer am I to be with you? Jesus will rebuke. We see this in Matthew and we see this in Mark. Jesus will rebuke the father. He doesn't hear in Luke's narrative. Luke's condensed this, but Luke does highlight that Jesus rebukes the crowd. He's rebuking the disciples 
And then he rebukes the demon. <laughs> Amazing. Right? As he was approaching the boy that threw him down to the ground and shook him with convulsions, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit. He healed the boy, gave him back to the father, and they were all astonished at his mighty power of God. I love that it says all. That includes Peter, James, and John. Those three that were on the Mount of Transfiguration, they're astonished here. Why should he be astonished? You just saw him in all his glory. You saw Moses. You saw Elijah. This is the one we have longed to see. Well, there's three things that there in your notes to give you uh, an application. The first of these is deals with the matter of trust. We need to be careful to approach life's problems with a deep appreciation of God's power, excluding any motive to be self-governing or autonomous. Proverbs 3, you know the text, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not into your own insight or understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Allow the Lord to lead. Sometimes, I think of Paul, he's waxing eloquent on the whole subject of justification, being declared right through chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. I mean, it's, whoo, it's a theological dream moving through chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. And he gets to the end of chapter 11 and he breaks out into doxology, which you don't expect. Doxologies are always at the end of the letters. But no, he breaks out because he can't help it. And he says, who has known the mind of the Lord? And Peter, James, and John, in particular Peter as the, the ringleader, is trying to put Jesus in a box. And he says, no, no, this is what the Messiah does. And we've just seen it here with Moses and Elijah. And, and God says, no, 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 no. You've missed it. And sadly, this miracle also demonstrates they don't fully grasp what this is entailing. They don't fully grasp who they have in their midst. Yeah, Peter made the great confession, you are the Christ. But grasping fully what that means, that's a whole different story. Oswald Chambers said, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or abandonment or of reliance on them. All throughout history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. The Lord does not need your talents and abilities. Hate to tell you. He doesn't need CBF to accomplish his goal here on this earth. He doesn't need your pocketbook. What he does request that you deny yourself and follow him. Amen. To allow him to lead. To allow him to work. And Oswald Chambers is correct. The somebodies are those that are dependent on the Lord and allowing him to lead. Those who are truly trusting in the Lord. And that leads us to the second. And that is a matter of prayer. Ministry, or life for that matter, requires prayer. We must be dependent on the Lord. Sadly, and we can approach the Lord as it's a McDonald's drive through right? <laughs> Expecting fast service, a fulfilled personal order, and immediate gratification. <laughs> There's a real danger in not waiting on the Lord in the midst of prayer. We can miss God's working and the blessings that come, that how he can use us. We become self-reliant and rob God of his glory. And honestly, we can make a mess of things very quickly. 
Just look at the disciples trying to cast out a demon out of a little boy. What the church needs today is not more machinery or better equipment, not new organizations or novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use. People of prayer, mighty in prayer. I love it that at 9.15 there's a whole group that gathers volunteers, about 30 or 40, they gather in this lobby and are praying for this service. It's dynamite. Love, you can join us. Come on Sunday morning, 9.15. A group that are praying. Then there's groups that, that, that have gone through the auditorium and prayed. Through the nursery and prayed. Prayer is vital. Let me challenge you this week. Pray for CBF. Pray for this church. Pray for the church at large. Trusting. Praying. And the third principle I think we can glean from Luke 9 is to watch. After you've trusted the Lord, you've done that in prayer, then sit back and watch God work. <laughs> watch his mighty hand. We must confidently rest in the fact that the Lord is not only capable of answering our prayers, but that he is also willing to do so. You know, the figure Elijah is mentioned in James 5. The text says, the prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us and he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heavens gave rain and the earth yielded its harvest. Again, what does he say? The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Of all the events from Elijah's life, if you look at the rabbinic literature, Jewish literature from the intertestament period to the first few hundred years of the of 100s, 200s, 300s AD, the, the, the activity that Elijah is known most for is not raising the widow's son or taking down Ahab and Jezebel. He's known for his prayer life. Isn't that interesting? This is the one who brings restoration he was known for his prayer. And so, we need to watch. We need to trust, we need to pray, and we need to watch. We need to be men and women who have a grasp of God's glory. That which was seen in a foretaste on the Mount of Transfiguration will appear someday. We need to understand that we need to wait and listen to him and then watch God move mightily. Amen. Father, Forgive us where we fall short in our faith. Forgive us when we run ahead of you. Forgive us when we're so quick not to deny all of us. <laughs> we give you some, but not all. And you're asking for complete sacrifice, for complete dependence on you, and a complete understanding that we are your servants. We are here for you. And so, Father, may we not forget this Jesus is your son. He is the chosen one. And our role is to listen to him. Father, we thank you. We praise you. And it's his name, Jesus, that we close. Amen.